can't believe you two took that raving lunatic seriously. What do you think this is? <laughs> Episode two of the podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. What do you think the odds are that she's going to play Gambit on my account while we're recording? I'm going to say that's very low, but it's a very funny thought. Because hmm. what your computer's unlocked right now. Yeah. And you have it up and running. Yeah. She's going to jump in. She just has to hit play. And then know how to get to Gambit and then learn how to aim and move with the mouse and the all, keyboard. All in the amount of time. Yeah. By the time recording. the podcast is done. Oh, okay. I'm going to put that at like a strong 1% chance mm, of happening. That sucks. But that would be very interesting. Yeah, I need my third third Gambit reset for the season. Oh, what happens with the third Gambit reset? You get, it's really stupid. You get a ship. Well, actually, you get a shell in Destiny that you don't really need for really anything except for the Gambit challenge, the triumph for this title. Called so, Dredgen. So you have to do a thing in order to get a thing to do the other thing? You have to do like 11 steps in order to get the challenge, the title. One of the steps is to collect all the items in Gambit. There's a whole list of them, like 11. And one of them, the shell, you have to reset your Gambit rank three times to buy it from the Drifter. It's pretty lame. That is some pretty lame. So the resets, the point of the reset is to make it take longer no it's just like you get enough uh like experience or rank to where it gets to like fifteen thousand, and then you reset because they don't want it to go on forever so you make this like rank like mythic fifteen thousand points you reset and then you're back at rank one and then you go all the way back up to the top reset and all the way back up to the top reset and then you get the challenge it's pretty it's one of the ways that they make you play forever. That seems a little repetitive. Oh. I mean, you're going to play Gambit anyways. That's true. Unless you're playing Crucible. That's true. But anyways, TypeScript. Greg, we're talking about TypeScript today. Yeah. Are you, are you excited about this topic? Totally. I am super excited to talk about this topic. I alluded to it very slightly last week when I said that you secretly love TypeScript, even though publicly you kind of don't. I mean, it is public knowledge that I learned how to program in Java. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I know everything about how TypeScript is useful. Yeah, so why would, why would somebody who cut their teeth on Java be interested in something like TypeScript? Mm. TypeScript was created for a lot of the C-sharp C community. Or no, is it C-sharp? Which one's, which one's the Microsoft one? C-sharp. It's not Objective-C, it's C-sharp, yeah. It was created for them, and Microsoft really supports it because a lot of the things that are like good that are coming to JavaScript and ES6 come from other languages. Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes from C-sharp. C right, so stuff like types, because TypeScript. Mm -hmm. Well, there's types, and then also lambdas, arrow functions, all of that. The function currying stuff mm -hmm. all kind of gets its influence from C-sharp. Mm. As, as I've heard, reading on the interwebs, are these the kind of things that you think JavaScript needs in 2018? It's interesting. I find, like, I have a love and disdain for Babel. And I kind of put TypeScript sort of in the same boat, but a little bit, a lot bit better. Because it's actually, like, a legitimate thing that I think the language needs. But it's just one of those things where you have to, you have to take something that's supposed to be super easy to write, like JavaScript. It's supposed to be fast and scripted. Mm -hmm. And all these languages, like TypeScript... Babel. What was that old one that no one liked? Uh, CoffeeScript. Oh, yeah. I'll turn terrible. it into a compiled language. So then yeah. you basically have to write JavaScript and then you have to expect that something like Webpack is going to compile it all or roll up or something. So you basically have to take something that's supposed to be this extremely fast language to write script run on a browser and then convert it into something that has to be compiled through a whole build system just to get it to work. Where I think TypeScript is like one of the actual useful avenues of that whole area is that it actually brings useful things to the language that are great for really big projects like typing and just 
yeah i mean there's the interfaces too mm-hmm. it's kind of just a fancy wrapper around prototypes just like classes are right but it adds all that stuff and then it lets you to really think about how you're going to make your classes and how you can reuse them the problem with javascript is that nothing is really as reusable as like java right in java if you code in spring or something you'll have you'll actually write an interface or even php and laravel has really good support for interfaces and dependency injection and all that kind of stuff but you basically in in something like laravel you would write like a interface to deal with the file system for instance and there'll be this default file system writer or whatever it is that's more java thing but like there'll be this default thing to write files and then you can say you know what i want to override that thing or i want to extend it and create like an s3 file writer or a uh what is that thing called sftp writer Mm -hmm. it's blanking because it's turkey turkey day and i haven't been thinking about programming but you know, you'll you'll like extend it and you'll create these like replaceable, adaptable classes in something that actually is compiled or intended. PHP is not really compiled, but intended to be run in the like after it's been built. Right. JavaScript's intended to just drop it in a folder, put an index.html, link it, and it runs. Yeah. I mean, no one no one writes code like that anymore. But basically, you have to take your web app and you have to make this really really complicated built web app. And one of the good things that TypeScript does is it brings into it a level of understanding how things are built, how things link together, how, like, what kind of object is this class going to get in its method. But, like, one of the really annoying things about that is if you're trying to adapt TypeScript onto, let's just say you haven't even built the front end, you just have the back end. You have to basically build, you don't have to, because you could use type any or, like, pretty much anything and just bypass TypeScript, but you're kind of not really... That defeats the purpose. You're kind of defeating the purpose, yeah. But if you have, like, an API endpoint that returns a certain set of data, and you know that, like, some of the values are strings, some of them are numbers, some of them are objects, whatever, you have to essentially create a type for that. So you have to say, like, this is an object that has one string called first name, a second string called last name, a number for age, et cetera. And you have to define all that stuff if you really want to use the type inf- inference. Right. So then when you call this API, you get back this large blob of data and you know what's roughly inside of it. Right. The problem with that that I find is that if you're trying to build something really, really fast or like a project that isn't intending to last for multiple years, et cetera, you'll end up with this wasted time typing objects that aren't really needed if you're just building something really fast. But then the disadvantage is if you don't type things and then you expect an object to be giving you a certain thing, often you won't know that the API or whatever is giving you missing data. Right. So this is one of the kind of traditional downfalls of of JavaScript, right? It is a dynamic language. It doesn't have strong typing built in. And so you make assumptions about what you're data is when it comes through mm-hmm. and if those assumptions turn out to be incorrect and you have a fun time figuring out where the hell your data is what the hell it's doing yeah. why it's not coming through in your structure and so typescript is designed to kind of alleviate some of those concerns right but you did bring up a good point about you are now back to the question of balancing speed mm-hmm. of development versus the structure and the Kind of robustness of how you design your code base and how you architect things. So I think that that question is a little bit different from whether or not TypeScript is a good thing in general or JavaScript, right? That That's a question that your Java developer, your C++, your C-sharp developer has had throughout the history of programming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas JavaScript is such a different paradigm from that that adding those questions back into JavaScript now makes JavaScript a little bit more legit, right? Sort of, but I mean, it's just, it's not actually legit. That's kind of the problem, is that it's compiled. Now, TypeScript, they're working, I'm sure sooner or later, Google on V8 and TypeScript are going to start working together because I think TypeScript probably, if not, if not, it's it's not going to, if it, I'm stumbling with my words, but it, I think it could become the future of what the language is, mm. or at least parts of what it has will come to V8, which is the basis for Node.js and right. modern JavaScript and Babel. It will, I think a lot of those features will come to the language as a first-party thing mm. 
because like in ES7, they already are talking about class um, private methods and public methods or public, not public methods, but public properties. Because technically, even if an object has in JavaScript, a class has a class has like a, a property, you can always read the property by saying, you know, foo dot prototype dot value. Right. It's really hard to hide things inside of a class unless you hide it inside of like a set or something internally to the class or you put it in the constructor and then it's part of the closure as yeah. opposed to being a property of the object. But like that whole concept of trying to create private properties, which are sometimes needed. I mean, I often wonder what is the benefit of having private properties because everybody can just read your JavaScript so they know what the values are. But, you know, they can put breakpoints on your classes and figure that out. But so it's like you're never really going to get that level because it's not a server driven language unless you're talking about Node. You're never going to get that level of security that private methods give you. Right. So it's like our private properties give you. So I don't know. I think I think it's interesting because it allows you to create a process around how you write code and it allows you to define the the entire object, the, the entire set of data that your application knows at runtime, at API call time, etc., is all predefined because you right. know it. Yeah. It's all been mapped out, which is great. But, you know, that unless it's kind of like unit testing, unless you're doing it from the beginning, it's it's not going to be as helpful as if, I mean, it will be helpful if you end up adding tests, but if you're not doing test-driven development, you're not getting the benefit of unit tests. Kind of the same thing with TypeScript. If you're not actually thinking about your application being TypeScript type, being typed from the first place, you end up shooting yourself in the foot. Right. It's, it's not the kind of thing that you would want to add on to a code base that already exists, right? If you've built, say, a JavaScript web app of some sort, and someone says to you, hey, let's add TypeScript. I heard about this on the Public Function Show. We should add this to our, our app. That is not the use case for it, right? That is not the ideal no. way of doing things. You want to structure your app from the beginning, from the ground up, using TypeScript, and that's where you get the benefits of strong typing, knowing what your data is doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think you bring up a good point there. Yeah, one of the interesting things is that they, I'm looking at their website. Um, I don't know if they still use this this uh, thought direction, I guess, whatever the word is, but they say like, you know, it's kind of like with Flow. You could just add it to your library, which Flow is another typing type inference system that was built by Facebook, but it doesn't actually have definitions, type definitions. It kind of just, you def it figures out for you what the type should be based on analysis of all the different arguments in the function or in the functions of your program but often it, it doesn't understand like what certain things would be like if oh, what's coming from the api how the heck does it know yeah but it knows that you're using one of those values as a number at some point so it's like that's supposed to be a number but the idea that some of these things have and, and some of the ways that people look at these is they say you know typescript is really unless you use those features typescript typescript is just javascript so you right. can kind of intermix using javascript with using typescript right exactly so in some places you'll see online people will be like oh you could just add it and then if you literally just add this one line of file code to your project or you enable typescript then all of a sudden you have like vs code type inference right. for you which is good i mean it gives you that but it's one of those things where like people people may assume that they don't actually have to use TypeScript. They're like, oh, well, I just add this one line of code and all of a sudden I have VS Code type inference. But, you know, what happens when you're running it on CI? Right, exactly. You have no type inference because VS Code's not there. Right. So I think if you're going to use it, you should be all in. I think that's a good point. I think that the benefits from using something like TypeScript only come from, like you said, being all in on it. Yes, it is helpful in certain code editors where it kind of is able to figure out your type inference and what data types certain things are supposed to be. Uh, but if you're running it on a server, if you're running it in a fully built web app, then you don't have those things and it doesn't necessarily give you a lot of benefits. So I think those are all good points. Um, yeah. one, one of the things we've seen recently is that there a lot of React frameworks, frameworks, mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of the yeah. front ends that use React kind of as a basis are starting to build in TypeScript support kind of as a first party thing and yeah. making it really easy to start up a new application with TypeScript support kind of 
built baked in, working really nicely, kind of out of the box. I've seen that with Create React app very recently. They're, I think it was part of their 2.0 launch. Mm-hmm. We've also seen that with uh, Gatsby, which is a technology you and I have used quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really good TypeScript support and out of the box. And that, to me, helps, helps promote and helps give people a really easy way in or easy way to start off using TypeScript from the, from the start. And I think when you have tools like that, you're only going to see more and more adoption and, and more and more people taking that on. And so I think that, to me, as, as a person who has a lot of front-end experience, um, the, the TypeScript paradigm has really helped me keep things in line a little bit. Uh, the, the whole having to figure out what your data is and not knowing if it's coming through correctly is a big problem with, with kind of your traditional JavaScript yeah. uh, definitions. And so when you have things like a TypeScript helping you out in that case where it can tell you what your props are supposed to be, right, when you're, when you're building things out in React, um, it's super, super helpful. Uh, it helps speed up your development quite a bit on the front-end side. So I, I see it as a really positive thing there. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if, if people who have come from the Java world or, or from the C-sharp world uh, kind of see it the same way. I think that there's a, have been a lot of grief about JavaScript not being a, a real programming language. or <laughs> It's like, not a real boy. It's <laughs> kind of uh, having a lot of shortcomings that uh, a lot of people who come from maybe a more traditional programming background uh, see as deal breakers. But I think this sort of thing is good. I think TypeScript uh, being more accepted into uh, stuff like Create Your Act app or other, other technologies like that being built into things like ES7 and V8 and all those things is a good thing going forward. Um, it, it kind of takes us away from a lot of the problems that JavaScript has presented in the past. So I think it's all good. And I think that Greg will secretly start to love it more <laughs> and more and more. And he will secretly start to love JavaScript more and more and more, even though he wants to act like he's not. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with JavaScript. I mean, I learned I learned how to program on Java and then mostly PHP because I was a back-end dev first. So I did a lot of work with Laravel and a lot of work with Java. Well, I haven't really done much with Java. I kind of just learned on Java and then did a few projects here and there. But I mean, if you look at things like like Spring, so you kind of imagine like what is the end game of typing, yeah. of using like a type language to its extreme. And you go and you look at Spring and it basically... There's this thing in Java that they kind of tried to bring into Laravel into PHP, and it, I don't really remember if it kind of caught on. It seemed like everybody hated it, but it's this thing called annotations. So you take your models of either your Laravel app or your Spring app, and you basically annotate what type each value is, and also whether or not those values are. So you do like the regular stuff in Java. So you'll say like public value, like public string cats equals cats or whatever um my favorite variable name cats Mm -hmm. so you'll do that and then you also will annotate it as being a model so you'll say like this thing is a model and this value is one of the values that you can retrieve with a getter right and then you define all these things you define the getters and setters you define the annotations for this model and then springs like great i know exactly what type of data at the source of where this thing is created now, you'll ask yourself, like, well, where did the model come from? Like in Backbone world, models were something very specific that right. was they were trying to do the model collection philosophy. Yeah. But it doesn't really work as well if it's not typed. But if you start to think of, like, what is a model? A model in Spring is the thing that you're actually defining when you get data from your API. So you create a model for everything. You create a model around, like, a user or a place or whatever it is that's coming from your API and you define every single key on it and you define every type of it, every, whether or not it's public, whether or not it's private, how it comes. And you, you're basically modeling what the API is returning as an object, which is what you end up doing in TypeScript. What I was talking about earlier being sometimes tedious and etc. But basically once you do that in spring and you define the models, you can actually generate an entire repository that knows how to query against those things in a database without actually even knowing 
you don't even have to write the code for like if you're saying like i want to create read or update or delete this object if it's a simple object against a database and the and spring knows that it's inside of like a jdbc database driver it can actually just retrieve information from the database without you actually writing getters mm. if you use this repository pattern it knows kind of like how backbone had its crud operations were post get patch etc like there was that clear definition right. if you actually used a real model and you defined how it was worked in the api it would have this connection where it knows like if i need to get more of those things i would call a get against its endpoint because it knows its endpoint part of the annotations so it knows its database table it knows its endpoint etc if it's an api whatever and you can just kind of skip the process of writing all that tedious code to like get data delete unless it's custom you can do really interesting things like with spring i was working on this one project where i needed to get data sorted by a certain time or um retrieved with a certain order i don't remember what it was but i basically didn't have to change the method all i did is i just mm. changed the definition in the controller where it was getting the data from the repository and it kind of just like clicked very interesting and that there's a lot of magic as they would say in spring i would call it magic there's a lot of like it kind of just is configured this way right if you enable jdbc drivers you tell it where it's you know it's database username definite like a destination etc it just works mm. A lot of that magic is is available to be to you because of the typing of Java. Right. And if you really kind of want to see what the end game of like a really, really powerful typed language would be, look at either Laravel or Spring. I know they're both backend languages and, and well, Laravel is kind of both, but I really only use Laravel for APIs because I right. write a lot of front end stuff in in like React, et cetera. But if you look at those languages, you'll see, or those those frameworks, you'll see what kind of what the end game of like a really well thought out, typed, interfaced out library would look like. And it's it's really powerful. You can do some crazy stuff with not that much code in both of those languages. And a lot of it becomes configuration rather than coding. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things to bring it back to TypeScript. That's one of the things that strong typing gives you is that it allows you to create these really, really well thought out, really clean APIs. Like you can look at the React API, granted it's not written in TypeScript, but you look at the React API, it's a very, very simple API. The, if you understand a few concepts about reconciliation and how the, the diffing mechanism works, you kind of understand the under the hood of React. It's kind of the same thing with those other languages. You start to understand that everything is just an interface to some other thing and you can get at those things and configure them to do different things for you. And then you can build really crazy APIs in Laravel that use, say, you know, JWT tokens or to log in or whatever. Right. And I think that that kind of power will eventually come to JavaScript APIs. I mean, you look at Vue and 3.0 of Vue is adding TypeScript and you can see that it has it has a really strong API and it's really well thought out. And Evan, you, the developer of Vue, is really focused on making it backwards compatible, but yet making it faster, smarter, and cleaner to work with. And he's adding TypeScript to it so that it can make it easier for people to, like, it's not a requirement, but it makes it works better with people that are using TypeScript, or at least doesn't fight them. Right. So. Yeah, I, th I think these are all good points. I mean, the idea that JavaScript will eventually become this thing that is as structured and as robust as something like a Laravel or a Spring in terms of building backends or building the, the bones of a, an entire web app, I think that is in the near future for JavaScript, right? It, it's such a common program language, especially for any kind of web work, that eventually those needs that are addressed by a thing like Laravel or a thing like a spring will need to make it into JavaScript in order for it to continue being this thing yeah. that people use to build web apps, right? I mean, one of the greatest things about web, well, the, the worst things about web development is that you're always coding for the lowest common denominator. So you always have True. IE. Um, I mean, there's things like WebAssembly are coming out where you could write C-sharp code for a web browser and it would understand because, mm. you know, Google's working on that. But, you know, that works great in Chrome and it works great in Firefox. It'll probably, I don't know if it works in, probably may work in Edge, but it doesn't work in IE11. And yeah. you still have so many people on 
old versions of IE that it's one of those things where like JavaScript is one of those really interesting languages where it it is so pervasive. And even though ES4 and below kind of sucked mm -hmm. some in some aspects uh, under the hood, you know, there's all those things where people are just like adding brackets together and getting numbers in the language because yep. the interpreter yep. doesn't understand yep. what it's doing or it doesn't understand what the type, what kind of number something is, if it's a float or there's all kinds of things wrong with the language. Yeah. But it's also a great language. Um, one of the things it has going for it is that it's what browsers use. And Babel really kind of, I mean, as much as I don't like the fact that Babel kind of just magically turns your code into something that it isn't, uh, or you kind of don't understand what it's compiling to as much as they, you know, on their, if you go to their website, they have like these two little boxes where it's like, put your code here and see what it compiles. Because they're like, oh yeah, it's so easy. Just put your code here, tell it what, you know, uh, what language level you're trying to code to. And then it's like, boom, there's your code. But if you ever look at something that Webpack or Babel compiles, you're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, it looks ridiculous. It looks ridiculous. And it's really hard to figure out how to debug it. Wouldn't it be great if in the future the web browsers just understood ES6, ES7 and TypeScript mm. themselves and you just whatever code was on the browser was actually what you wrote? Yeah. So you wouldn't even really need source files, the source definitions. You just it would just work. Because, you know, one of the one of the problems I have often with configuring Webpack projects is just the way that you have to deliver the code to some <laughs> some back end systems like Adobe CQ or mm -hmm. AM. It doesn't it just ignores the, the source files. So when you're trying yeah. to run it, even if you have compiled with source maps, it just ignores them when it delivers it back to you. It only delivers, you know, one part of it. And for whatever reason, Chrome's like, you know, source map detected, but you click that and it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it doesn't actually understand how to connect all these things together. When you just use Create React App and you just compile your app and you use it as it was intended to be used, with all these different things configured for you, it works great. Source maps work great. It yeah. has the yellow screen errors and the yep. red screen errors and all that cool stuff. But when you actually try to go in and use it with something very, very specific like Adobe AM, you're you're not going to get a lot of that unless you put a ton of time into configuring it. Yeah, and the configurations aren't that straightforward either, right? You've got basically an opinionated backend that mm -hmm. wants to do things its own way. Or, you know, the 1999 way. The 1999 way, right. That, that way may not be from this century, but it's its own way. It's doing its own thing. Yeah. And you've got this beautiful, wonderful, nicely organized, strongly typed front end. And you're trying to get them to talk to each other and they don't necessarily want to talk to each other. So yeah. it becomes that those are probably the hardest things to deal with, I would say, in web development is getting two different technologies that have two different sets of opinions to talk to each other. And TypeScript, I think, will push us towards maybe something that's closer to having these two sets of opinions be things that actually will talk to each other, right? Whereas before, you know, Wild Wild West JavaScript with no types whatsoever, I mean, that's not, you're, you're going to have problems hooking that up to yeah. something like an AEM. Um, I mean, I think some people will have no problem doing it, but it just depends on how much time you put into it. The nice thing about having, like, JavaScript really has been the Wild Wild West for a while. Before, even before ES5 mm -hmm. and ES6, it was... You know, it was a lot of jQuery and a lot of just manipulating the DOM and a lot of weird code. Mm -hmm. I mean, no structure whatsoever. Yeah. Back in the day, Node didn't even exist. You know, it was created. And then you're like, wow, this thing's really cool. Um, it really pushes the language forward. These, And then you start to attach the language of JavaScript to these really big companies that have a vested interest in it actually working. Mm -hmm. you know, Microsoft's working on TypeScript because they know that JavaScript web apps and that kind of code and server code I mean, Microsoft is a whole different discussion for different pods, uh, podcasts, but, you know, Microsoft has really reformatted their thinking on a lot of things. They really have. To be very, very competitive in terms of understanding that, you know, Azure is this thing. We haven't really talked much about backend or infrastructure, but Azure is this thing that, hey, it supports everything, mm -hmm. anything you'd ever want to run mm -hmm. on it. it. Works really well with Microsoft stuff. You know, if you're not using Microsoft, go for it. You know, they add the Linux subsystem to Microsoft, to Windows. They add, um, you know, they just they've just done a ton of moves to make development 
more streamlined across all of their products from the server to the user's computer with VS code and et cetera. And I think that that kind of uh, investment from a big company like Microsoft is really, really helpful to the language because it allows these interesting things like TypeScript to be created. Right. The, the bad thing that could come out of that is that everybody starts using TypeScript and then Microsoft is the owner of JavaScript, essentially. Could be. I doubt it because they also have to fight with Google and yeah. Facebook and Facebook's well, building Well, this React. is the wonderful thing about open source software and especially in the web world is that you, you have a lot of these open standards. And yeah, there are these big, huge, giant companies that are making things mm -hmm. that could theoretically take over the entire ecosystem. But you have competing interests at the same time, right? Google and Facebook and Microsoft all have these kind of alternative web technologies. Yeah, React is kind of a big deal, and it's it's being used quite a bit in the year 2018. But is it enough to literally be on every single website? Probably not. And you have enough competition from a framework like Angular, right, or other types of things that are coming from Microsoft that I don't know if you're necessarily going to see a complete takeover uh, uh, on one given standard to where having a company like Facebook be in, in charge of the entire web, essentially. Um, I don't know if that's going to be such a problem, but I think the competition is good. And I, and I agree with your point about Microsoft is that, especially in the era of uh, Satya Nadella, is that they've been making these huge, huge changes to be more of a progressive company that supports development and supports open standards uh, across a lot of different places. And that's that's a huge change for, for people who remember the Bill Gates days of Microsoft, the late 90s, the, the antitrust behaviors mm -hmm. and all those kind of things. Um, you know, it, it's a pretty big change, but I think it's a positive thing overall. And I think that it's going to be uh, kind of a good thing for web development in general. That kind of brings us to maybe what you think some of the downsides of, of TypeScript are. Not maybe not necessarily in specifically writing TypeScript, but in general, if it, if it is continued to be adopted and more of those features are built into things like ES7 going forward, what do you think some of the downsides of that would be? I mean, I think one of them, I think I've mentioned a few. I think one of them is that, I mean, you can love or hate Microsoft, but they own the language and they own TypeScript. I mean, at least, I think it's open source, but they at least are the number one. They created it, made it open source with air quotes, and then you know, but they still own it. It's kind of like how Facebook owns React and with the direction that they take the language or the framework in the case of React could be, because of the motivations of these companies could be different than what the general open source community needs for these frameworks. So, you know, we haven't really seen necessarily the end game of what React is. They could just be making it. I mean, the reason why they made it was out of necessity. They could just be continuing to improve it out of necessity, or one day they could drop spyware <laughs> into React. They could Windows Tenify. I don't think they would, um, but you know, the, their motivation is to is to get more people using React so that there's more of a um, there's more of a user base using it to where they can actually have contributors help them improve their own framework that right. they use. And then they have these great people that work at Facebook um, working on making React faster, more reliable, have a better API surface layer to keep it consistent and clean and kind of pave the way for what a framework could be for front end. But you often have to look at the motivations of these companies and why they're doing it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, even with React, uh... I think it was maybe a year or so ago where they ran into that issue no, with, the license uh, with the license debacle, yeah. right? Where um, there was kind of a reading of their original license of React that could be interpreted as if you use React on your website, we own all of your stuff. Sounds uh, very Facebooky. It sounds very Facebooky. Sounds very Instagram like. Yeah, a little bit, and and people were put off by that, and there was kind of a big, big whole, uh, big whole debacle around that. It was enough for Facebook to actually change the license. Right? Mm -hmm. They actually switched it to, to remove some of the language that people thought was questionable. And that is kind of how open source goes, right? That's how it's supposed to go. Um, 
I think a good example of that was kind of Red Hat's business model where they have this open source distribution, Fedora, where they try things. It's very, it's considered one of the more bleeding edge distributions of Linux, right? They're trying new technologies in their, op in their operating system. They get feedback, they get contributions from the open source community. They build in those best features into their enterprise version of it, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And that's the, the platform that they support, that they um, like sell to governments. Yeah, sell yeah. to governments and things like that. So uh, that is kind of the dream of open source, right? You have these big companies that it becomes in their best interest to provide these really good pieces of software for the public to use. And in turn, the public is able to contribute back to that so that these big companies can use those learnings and use that software to better their own products that they actually do sell and make money from. So uh, I think you have a good point where you don't necessarily want any one of these big companies controlling the entirety of how web apps are built. But I don't, I don't know if we're even really close to that point. At, at I mean, we're pretty close with React. They, they mean, really yeah. do dictate a lot of how things that, work. I mean, that, is, that is true, but it, you have enough alternatives, I think, uh, to where if there was some thing that came up tomorrow, you know, Mark Zuckerberg wakes up and goes, change the license back. Mm -hmm. I want to own all, all of the internet. People switch to Angular. People will switch to Vue, right? And it's not, the switching costs are high, but are they impossibly high? It depends. I mean, if you have a whole code base written in React to React Native and you need to rewrite it in Vue, you're talking basically a rebuild of your entire application. That's, that's true, but the alternative is giving Zuckerberg the keys to your website. So yeah. if you're dealing with a web application where giving Big Blue the keys to your entire architecture is a big enough deal that you need to switch away from it, I think that changing the front-end architecture is not actually that big of a task compared to that yeah i mean you could be forced to i don't know i think I th i'm not too worried about these companies doing doing interesting weird debacles like that with the licensing i think that a lot of it is just you have like google which is the company that focuses the most on standards so they're like they're building you know they have what seventy thousand engineers or whatever and they're building applications across their entire product spectrum. I think they're a better example for a company that has a lot of control over something, but then also has the, the way that they make money is a different way. Yeah. So they're, you know, they build Angular. Angular is kind of was popular in 1.0. It kind of sat for a little bit. And then, I mean, Angular's directives were the basis for the concept of like, classes like the yeah. jsx classes yeah. that whole concept of like passing data into it was essentially the beginning of what became props yeah two components yeah um an isolation of data within a web component essentially and that whole concept of like a web component in itself is something that google's really working on yeah to try to make it so that people can build components for chrome that work really really well and can safely access portions of the computer like the microphone etc all of that kind of stuff is valuable to them. And that's why they work on, you know, building V8, well, adopting and really pushing V8 forward is because that allows them to make Chrome more capable yeah. because they build the underlying framework of what makes Chromium have its JavaScript engine. So, and also Node.js's engine. And I think that that really helps them and I don't really think that their profit model is like aligned in a way where they're like, yeah, now we own V8, great. I think they're really just trying to make the web better so that their products are better, like Google Drive and Google Docs and Google, you know, the apps for businesses and all the things that actually make the money and obviously search. Yeah. <laughs> so they're trying to make those products better and they're trying to provide a better way for people to make apps that are more compatible, safer and more standards compliant for Chrome. You look at some of the things they do with SSL and like getting rid of, um, you're really flagging websites that don't have SSL certs and Google's really big on security and standards. Yeah. And I think that that's what their goal is. But then you look at something like Facebook and obviously their biggest product is the advertising on Facebook. But I mean, what is, what is their idea for the future of React? Are they just gonna keep working on it so that it benefits them and building Facebook faster, better, et cetera? Or, I mean, 
their their goal is collecting user information from advertising right so i mean I, you'd have to wonder you know could they eventually when react becomes the pinnacle of web development say yeah we're also going to add this i don't know if they would because they would get a lot of flack for it and obviously there are alternatives like view etc but I mean, if React is the best thing, it's like one of those things like people use Facebook. They know they're giving away all of their information that they put on that piece of software, that application to Facebook for advertising purposes. But yet they use it because the utility of it is in their mind or the better than the disadvantage or they don't know what the disadvantage is. Right. And that could be the same kind of thing with React in the future is that, yeah, there's like this little bit of stuff that it does to make it so that Facebook can maybe not overtly get into people's data on your applications, but it makes it easier for it more adaptable so that Facebook can get information from your applications. If you elect to do it, that's more of like a Facebook way of doing it. And then their next step is, Oh, you're elected, but you have the option to decline it. You know, that kind of philosophy is how Facebook runs the, the actual Facebook service. So, you know, where or how could that, how, what, what is that end game? You don't really know. Yeah. The improvement of, of a web standard even as something as, as common as React is not necessarily aligned with how they make money. Yeah. So you, it does beg the question of what exactly do they plan on doing mm -hmm. once they kind of have this market share, right? And you don't necessarily trust Marky Z, right? You don't necessarily trust Sheryl Sandberg with, with these kind of responsibilities because, especially recently, um, they kind of haven't shown or don't have a track record of, of being good stewards of, of that kind of influence in the market. So um, I think that's an interesting question. We'll have to see kind of how it goes. Um, it is yeah. different from how Google runs things. It is different from how Microsoft runs things. It's different from how Amazon runs things. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that works out in the future. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about type, to bring it back to TypeScript is that if you've looked at Microsoft's past, in in both development and the things that like windows the things that people use in office they kind of try to build a foundation that you can like if you're a business worker you can use microsoft windows or microsoft office you can get a ton of stuff done pay us your money you can get a ton of stuff done you know yeah. a license for per person per seat for office used to be 120 dollars and a license per seat per computer for Windows used to be 120 bucks. It was bulk buying and all kinds of stuff that they did, of course. But the point is, is that that set of that suite of software allowed people to do a lot of stuff in business. It allowed a lot of people to do stuff in development with C Sharp and, you know, ASP.NET and all of those things. And really, their goal was to sell the licenses for the software, the licenses for the databases, the license for all those things so that people could create the tools that they wanted to create. So Microsoft has always had, I think, a different philosophy on how they make money than, say, like Google, who was created as a company for advertising. Like that is what they the whole company was created on that. Microsoft was not. It wasn't created for that. But it's interesting to see, like, where will they go mm -hmm. in the future? How will they, you know, how will they take their entire business model, which is a discussion for a different podcast, but take their entire business model and hone that into something that continues to make them money. Right now, they're really, really appealing to one, at least in our world, they're appealing to one section of their business, which is developers. And they're saying, yep. you know, you you may have hated, uh, what's their editor? Um, the other one, the Visual one, Studio. Visual Studio. You might have, must have, might have hated Visual Studio for a long time if you were like a web developer who never came from C Sharp. Mm -hmm. But some of the greatest things that made Visual Studio good for C Sharp development are coming to VS Code. Right. So you can use VS Code for free. You can use TypeScript for free. You can even use those type inferences that, that TypeScript has to define like the inputs and outputs of all the functions in a library inside yep. of IntelliJ to say, even if you're not using TypeScript, it understands this library using. It understands view internally because of the types. Yep. There's all these really good things that they've done to make the development suite easier and better for developers. Because they're trying to, you know, they lost a lot of developers who don't do C Sharp who moved to like web development. Right. And all the future of, for a while, it was a question of whether or not it was mobile, which they weren't really ever that competitive in the space. So you have Apple and Google as the two key mobile developers, development platforms. And then you had web development and then you had server development with C Sharp, which they weren't really 
I mean, there's a lot of C sharp devs and a lot of C sharp applications out there, tons of them that people still support. But most of the time, people are building newer ones in Java or PHP if it's smaller or Ruby or whatever. I mean, unless it's a certain kind of business, like a medical business or something where, you know, C sharp makes sense, people aren't really building things in that language. A lot of the startups more lean towards open source frameworks for right. better or worse. Um, so they have to kind of create their their incentive in at least in the development world is to create things that'll make people's lives better like typescript yep so i the title of this is gonna be greg hates typescript right i think so that's our working title i like it i think it works because it, people will listen to it and be like he, he doesn't seem to actually hate typescript but you know i think it's funny <laughs> my my scheme has worked greg i have exposed you mm -hmm. i have made you disclose to everyone that listens to our podcast that you actually do love TypeScript. I mean, I learned on Java. Even though talking to you in person, you would hate on it quite a bit. I, yeah, I mean, the reasons that I hate on it are a lot of frustration. And when you're trying to build something in an advertising world, and you know, the, the language that you're working with uses TypeScript, and you're like, oh, well, you know, you can just ignore it. But... What was that? What was that Ionic? I think it was Ionic, Angular. Yeah. Angular really loves TypeScript. So yep. when you work in that world, you're kind of in that world and you're stuck working in that world. And if you're not fully invested in it, but say a client has told you that you have to use Angular or Angular happens to be the best tool for a particular aspect like Ionic, you have to use it. But if you're not wanting to use it, you're going to begrudgingly use it. If you're trying to build something really, really big, like a big web app for a really, really big company, you might want to use TypeScript. Yeah, I think they might actually require it. Yeah, it makes sense for long lived applications for applications. that have a lot of people working on it for people coming and going developer wise, right? You, you can you always know that your data is going to be structured in a certain way. Mm -hmm. You always know that. say your components, your front end components are expecting that data and going to use it in a certain way. And so that structure. Um, I think helps out quite a bit, right, because JavaScript is a language that has never really had that. And the problems that come from that are problems that are magnified at any sort of scale whatsoever, right? If yeah. you have a long-lived project and you don't know how your data is coming through or you have to do this little this little dance in every single one of your components to, to make the data work properly, uh, that's a kind of an anti-pattern, right? That's a, a brittle structure that's going to break down very quickly. And I think we've both seen that firsthand as well. So. Mm -hmm. You know, APIs that return 500s when you pass the wrong data. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. That's a whole lot of fun. That makes APIs sense. you don't control. Yeah, let's exactly. just say because I didn't write that API. Yeah, <laughs> this this black hole API that yeah. just like gives you things that you don't know what what they are. But if you wrapped everything in TypeScript and you knew the kind of data that you were expected to send to it and the kind of data you're expected to send back, you wouldn't accidentally send like a number as a string mm -hmm. and get a 500 from the API. Mm -hmm. And then if you use like a real code editor, like Visual Studio Code. No. IntelliJ. It'll it'll tell you. It'll <laughs> no, tell I you. love you. Oh, I you're love VS Code. To, you're trying to you're trying to pass a prop as a number. You can't do that, man. Yeah. The other thing we didn't talk about was prop types. I don't want to not mention that because that is one of the ways that React kind of allows allows you to have some measure of control of mm -hmm. what's given to components and mm -hmm. sent down to other components. If the prop types don't match, it will, you know, it could be set to error or to warn and. But the, the thing about prop types, if you look at uh, some applications that people build, if you like pick up one, an application from someone that you have to work on and they didn't do types, or they didn't do prop types. I mean, you're just you're not really going to have a good time. But yeah. if someone did do them and then say you were, you know, expected to write like unit tests for some code, you have no idea how it works. Well, you know, you know what the types are supposed to be because it's in the definition. Exactly. So it's that's why, like, you can you can gain some economy of of usefulness. <laughs> from having types types in your code mm -hmm. some understanding of how the code works just by how the prop types work yeah even if it's indirect like i know the api is giving me back a string here a number here a number here etc because it's here it's in the types of this component in where it's connected to redux and it's getting its data yeah it has these this object defined with all of its keys yep and if that's wrong it won't even it won't compile so you're saving depends on the level of warning but yeah i mean you can you can definitely make it do that yeah yeah, yeah. I think you bring up a good point there. Is that with the whole React paradigm of how you handle uh, data, 
right? It, it, it kind of brings up, it makes it more glaring that JavaScript doesn't really handle that data typing that well. And so when you add that data typing on top of it, on top of something like a React, where it is imperative to keep track of what the hell your data is doing, right? It, it seems like a really strong combination to use those two together. Yeah, an alternate uh, title for the podcast. Undefined is not a function. Undefined. <laughs> the greatest error of all time. Yeah. The most helpful, useful the error of all time. They did fix that, though, right? They just took that out. They're trying to. I mean, uh, React added error boundaries in 17.5 or whatever to like help with these kind of things so that you would get the error before. You know, you would catch it closer so mm -hmm. that it doesn't. One of the totally different topic, but one of the most annoying things about writing code in JavaScript is when it's compiled, you know, a lot of the times it'll tell you that the error is in vendors.js because the thing that actually crashed was like the error catcher in React. Right. And if you're not using Create React app, that error is not properly caught and then bubbled to the red screen, the red warning screen yeah. or the yellow warning screen or whatever and uh, how they do their errors in like React Native, etc. If it's not bubbled to that, it'll get caught in vendors.js if you, that's what you call your vendor bundle in Webpack. It'll get caught there and you'll be like, I have no idea where this came from. Yeah, it's you the whole can, thing. You can track it back, but because of the async nature of how React, how uh, JavaScript and Node work, you'll be caught in a closure of a closure of a closure of a closure, and you'll have no idea where the error was. Closure hell. Closure hell. And then you'll be like, oh, this is on line 5,467 of my, you know, vendors.js, and it's like some, oh, you know, React caught error, throw error. And you're like, great. Great, that's helpful. That's Thank very you. helpful. And then the error was undefined as not a function. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, it's great. It's a good error. Yeah. It's really helpful. Greg, you've taught us a lot about JavaScript today. I hope. You tell us a lot about TypeScript. I think it's going to be great. I hope so. Yeah. Greg, we had a little bit of feedback. We did? Not really. I, I kind of made up some feedback for oh, us. Oh, you made up feedback? Yes. Yeah. Nice. So you know how we were talking about the uh, the new Lenovo laptop, the X1 Extreme? Mm -hmm. So a couple days after our podcast came out. You bought one? I did not buy one, no. Oh. I, that's, another, that's another show. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am sort of interested. But uh, when Mr. Paul Therat got his hands on one, did a review on his website. That's some very interesting things to say, Greg. I think it's worth checking out. What did he say? What are the highlights? Um, performance is extremely good. Mm. And he has some comparisons of a test that he does with some of the newer MacBook Pros. Pretty solid. Mm. Pretty solid stuff. Um, although, the one thing I do disagree with him about is that he is a short travel keyboard enthusiast. I like short travel keyboards. No, you don't. I do. No, you don't actually. You don't actually. I mean, you, you know, so many years of typing on those little clicky Mac keyboard, MacBook keyboards, and before the new ones, and then yeah. the 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 little, you know, the white Mac keyboard that comes with all the, the desktops. Mm -hmm. What do they call that thing? The Magic Keyboard, I think, or whatever it's called. Something like that. Some yeah. some funny marketing name, but like that thing has short keys too, and you type on that for seven years writing code, and you're like. I have like a gaming, you know, full clicky cherry reds keyboard for playing games. And I'm like, I try to type words on that. And I'm like, these keys are too tall. Even though they're cherry reds and they don't have to be compressed that far. No, but the, 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 the white Apple keyboards. The, the not, not, Mac, the, not the laptop keyboards, but the external separate keyboards. Those are actually not bad travel wise, mm. right? What we're comparing them to are the keyboards on the new MacBook Pro, yeah, like which are terrible. It's you're typing on, you might as well be typing on a tabletop. Like it, there's essentially no travel. If you're a person who is a touch typist or or is kind of has classic typing technique. Uh, it, it's very difficult, and so it's refreshing to see something like an X1 Extreme that has a proper laptop keyboard. Right. It, it actually gives you the feel that you need to be able to be a touch typist. Right. It still has very solid, very modern hardware. Um, it is the downsides are that it is slightly thicker than the new MacBook Pros. But the advantages are you get a gigantic battery. I think it's a 90 watt hour battery. Right. Uh, you have all upgradable internals that you can upgrade whenever you want. You could probably even take off the heat sink if you wanted to. Hmm. Right. Giant, beautiful 4K screen. Right, proper speakers. But is it 1.9 pounds? <laughs> I believe one of the things that Paul Thorat pointed out is that it's actually slightly lighter than a, an equivalent 15-inch MacBook Pro. Hmm. Uh, maybe half a pound or so. It's probably all that metal they put in those things. 
All the aluminium. All the aluminium. Yeah, so I think that's worth checking out. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, very interesting stuff, Greg. Yeah. I think one of the things that it made me think of, Greg, I think it'd be very interesting if we made Greg no. do a, a Lenovo challenge. Are you going to buy me one? Maybe if we get a sponsor. Hmm. What if we made you work on one for a month exclusively on this laptop for a month? Can I install Linux on it? You can install whatever Linux you want. You can you mm. keep Windows on there if you want. Mm, no. No? Not Windows, no. The, you're, the stain on your face right now, the look on your face I don't, makes I mean, me want you to do this even more. I don't I think know. I mean, I wouldn't decline one if it was a challenge that I used it for a month, sure. But right now I'm working on a React Native project, so I don't know. I would have to like mm. write the code in VS Code and then deliver it to the CI environment and if, hope it runs. If, if, if only there were some way to use Mac servers in the cloud to I mean you your apps. can do that but you can't open Xcode unless you VM or like what was it called uh go into some other computer on the cloud. Mm. That's the only problem. If I had like a Mac mini server so the, yeah if this thing came with like a nicely equipped Mac mini 2 as part of this challenge Mac mini with like 32 gigs of RAM just to compile stuff, you know, just to, compile. just to compile things. 32 gigs to compile, yeah. Yeah. compile apps. Why not? Because then sure. when I'm done with this challenge, then I'm going to just use the Mac mini. Yeah, that's true. So both of those and then challenge accepted. Maybe we, we wait until we're not working on something that is iOS dependent. I don't I mean, because that's the thing is that that is the beautiful thing about the Mac OS is that you can do any language you want, mm -hmm. except for maybe C, like the old C sharp stuff. You can compile the modern ASP or whatever it's called stuff on a Mac, but you know, why would you? It's like you pick one world. Either you're going to be in Windows, or you're going to be in Mac. But the nice thing is when you switch to the Mac side, you can do everything that you can do on Linux conceivably. You can still do on a Mac, you know, begrudgingly with their crappy laptops. Yeah. But, you know, I still have the 2015 MacBook. Yes, we both still have the 2015 MacBooks. They work really well, sort of. I mean, they're starting to show their age. The but RAM is starting to be a problem. Yeah, right? my RAM is, is uh, probably broken. I think I broke it. With I'm Docker. just maxed out on RAM. Yeah, the I'm constantly running it. On, it's, 12 gigs. It's completely maxed out. I'm swapping, you know, 7, 8 gigs mm -hmm. to the disk at this point. Especially which is, when you turn on Adobe AEM. Yeah. It's like 10 gigs in itself. I don't know if that is as big of a RAM hog as 40 Chrome tabs, mm. you know, 10 Slack rooms. Don't I they have that the thing ones. that turns the Chrome tabs it's silent when you're not on them? There's that plugin. I don't know if that's built in. There's definitely an extension, I'm pretty There's sure. There's an that extension does that. that does that. That will like, then, freeze tabs. Yeah, like like Safari does on the phone. If you're not on a tab, it reloads it when you go back to it. I don't, I don't want to deal with that, though. Because mm -hmm. it takes a second. If you switch back to a tab that's frozen, it takes a second for it to turn back on. Pretty sure it also refreshes, which you don't necessarily always I think do you can ignore certain tabs. You should check it out. I don't know. I mean, it is kind of annoying, but I have installed it and I don't use it now. So that kind of does show that it is probably more annoying than it is worth. Yeah. But, you know, what would be really great is just to have enough RAM to run Chrome. Yeah. With with like 100 tabs. Yeah. I mean, our you and I both have desktops that we've built ourselves that are at 32 gigs of RAM and it's glorious. Yeah. Uh, it would seem like the job that we are paid a lot of money to do would benefit greatly from having... 32 gigs of RAM. Yeah. But we don't make those decisions. No. We no. would like to, though. Maybe. Maybe we can get you an X1 Extreme and it'll, it'll, it'll change your mind. Maybe. Maybe. As Greg, long as it has a Mac Mini. <laughs> Greg, do you have a pick for us this week? I do. I've been playing a ton of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Oh, man. Did you, did you pick that up for Black Friday? or I did. It was when you sent it in Slack. It was like... 39 bucks and i had to decide because i'm playing a ton of destiny right now um trying to get to the season end season four end i was like do i want to take on another game but then i thought about it and like the cheapest it would probably get would be 29 bucks in the immediate future yeah. so i was like ten dollars more and i have the game great i didn't get the expansions or anything but i'm playing it. it's a blast it's yeah. like it's like origins but better mm. which one of our other coworkers was like 
you know, it's like Origins. It's it's like you should play something else. And I start playing it and I'm like, no, it's like Origins, but better. And yeah. Origins was good. So why do I care if there's more of this world? It's yeah, amazing. Exactly. It has this really cool thing where like uh, there was that Shadows of Mordor where like you could assassinate certain people. Like you would fight certain mobs that are named and it would always regenerate new ones with different names. Mm. There's that kind of system in Origin Odyssey where there's these tiers of uh, I forgot what they call it, the mercenary gauntlet, I think. And then they can go into like the what that? I was about to say cathedral, but that's not where you fight. It was <laughs> like you could go in and you can fight them in these uh, arenas. And it's like can, a coliseum. It's like a coliseum, but uh, it's fight it's Greece. And, like, so the and stuff. coliseum wasn't built yet. It's before it's before oh. Rome. So. But yeah, that kind of idea, you could like fight them or you could they just come attack you if you get like it's kind of like Grand Theft Auto where you kill people and then you get like a, a wanted bounty mm. and then you can either pay off the bounty or people come fight you. Yeah, often because I've just got like really good gear right now. I just let the bounty go up and then I just kill all the mercenaries mm. that come and they drop like better loot. So I don't know. It's like they have that. Plus, if you played Origins, there was boats. And you could like there was a certain set of levels where you were like on a trireme and you were like trying to ram into people and kill stuff. Yeah, it was kind of annoying because like it was like these interlude missions where you were on a ship mm -hmm. in this game. You just you within when you leave the first zone, you get a ship to leave the first zone. And then that is your ship from the game. And you can take it wherever you want to. Mm. You upgrade it. You add like all these different things. You get these mercenaries to come join you. Like some of those mercenaries you kill if yeah. you kind of like incapacitate them and then ask them, well, basically force them to be on your team. Yeah. You'll get like a, a I forgot what they're rare or exotic. I don't know the terms because like Destiny has exotic or whatever, but there's like purple, blue, white for like basic and then yellow, orangey for like the highest level. But you can get those people to be on your side. And if you get like an orange mercenary, your ship gets like a whole bunch of perks. So I don't know, not to go too far on it, but. It's a really good game. It's very, very taxing on your system. Oh, I play it at 4K. Uh, I get like, I think like 50 FPS max Ooh. on my Titan XP. Oh, so it's very taxing, but oh. it looks and it's not even on full settings. It's like it's not maxed out settings. It's not even maxed out settings, but uh, like I think all the shadows are off. Like it's not a very tuned game. Oh, like if you play Destiny, it runs like perfectly with all the graphics max it is an older game and it has a smaller sandbox to play in but i think it's more optimized because it's been being developed for longer but uh, and i think origins notoriously had a pretty crappy pc port mm. but odyssey they've improved a lot of it but it still is very taxing on your system especially if you try to run a 4k mm. but it's a great game that's that's fantastic that's a good pick greg my pick this week is a television show on netflix which one? It's the. It's called Narcos Mexico. So it is, is it a different one than Narcos? it is technically different. So it is not a fourth season of the very popular show Narcos. It is a. Kind of a spinoff, but not really a spinoff. Is it the same team that made it? It is writers. I believe it is the same writers, but it is it is a different set of characters that they're following. But one thing that's interesting is that they exist in the same timeline as the characters from the original show. Mm, so right. it's like uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul kind of idea? Sort of. It's not, it, they're, they actually exist in the same time frame. So it's not a prequel or a sequel. It's kind of Yeah, there was, there was crossovers in Breaking Bad Better Call Saul where like you saw the chicken guy in the Better Call Saul because like the lawyer would go talk to him or be near him or something or go to his right, restaurant. Right, but that Better Call Saul is a prequel. All yeah. of it occurs before the events of Breaking Bad. But not that far before. Not that far before. I'm you saying, see the connections yeah. and Narcos mm -hmm. Mexico is similar. Um, That's cool. If you enjoyed Narcos. I did. The original three seasons of Narcos um, is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Michael Pena is the, the new DEA agent. He's fantastic. Um, even if you don't think of him as a I think he's a great actor. Drama actor, but he's actually very, very good. Um, and one of the bad guys is Diego Luna, who's mm. also very talented. He's a very good-looking man as well. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's what I watch my Netflix shows for. Yeah, that's what I. I, I know you you were gonna you were gonna be excited by that. So definitely check that out if you're uh, looking on Netflix. Uh, it's worth a worth a worth a watch. We'll see. I'm going after Luna's Howl and Redrick's Broadsword oh, next man. season of Destiny. When does that start? Tuesday. Is it every Tuesday? No, the seasons are three months long. Oh, wow. I think, or two months long. Something it seems like kind that. of short for a season. Well, it's like, it's not like a season in terms of like, um, 
a story arc. It's more of like the competitive season for mm. Crucible, Gambit, all the fighting stuff. Okay. And then every season they'll add like a a new set of rewards. So there'll be like new ghost ships and stuff to collect. It's basically one of their ways to keep you in because they don't always release new expansions, mm. but sometimes they are timed to be around the release of a season. Like season five starts Tuesday and then the next expansion, Dark Armory or Black Armory, I forgot what it's called, but um, that expansion starts in December. Mm. So they're close, but it gives you something new to aspire to while you're waiting for the next expansion. Very interesting. But anyways, that's, that's going to stop me from watching TV. Okay. Well, fit in when you can. We all have hobbies. Yeah. I'll have to take a break sooner or later and watch it. That makes sense. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? I don't know. Twitter. I don't use it. I don't have a Facebook account. I mean, all the, the Lenovo fans are going to start, I start mean, adding you, man. They're, you're going you're gonna to start hearing about these things. I think the only social media that I actually use is the social aspects of GitHub. Yeah. That's fantastic. All right. So if somebody wanted to send you an issue I mean, you can on send GitHub. That. I'm sure sooner or later I'm going to have to use Twitter. So yeah. you hear that, folks? Greg is, Greg is pining. No. For contact on Twitter. No, no. His Twitter is in our show notes. You can hit him up there. I'm at Al Park. Hey, Al Park. Hit me up. Let me know. If you guys want to contribute to the uh, Greg Lenovo challenge, definitely let me know there. Greg, we're, did I tell you that we are now on iTunes officially? No, you didn't tell me We that. are 100% officially on iTunes. I think whoever was reviewing was on vacation. was on vacation. They did their Thanksgiving thing. Lots of Black Friday stuff, and then they, yeah, approved us on iTunes. So we're on iTunes, public function. Uh, you should see the the cover; it's on there. We're also on Spotify, and anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Definitely check us out. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you think Greg should switch to a Lenovo X1 Extreme permanently, forever and ever and ever. Yeah, we're on Pcast. We're on Pcast. We're on Pcast. We're all. That's where it matters to me. On Pcast. Oh, well, that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great app. Cool. 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 Awesome. All right. See you next week, Greg. See you next week. Bye. Bye.